0: Hey, well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Northridge. For about the fourth or fifth time already in the service, we want to say thank you for being here. Hope you feel welcomed and welcome home. Thank you for being part of the family. My name is Aaron. I'm the Rochester campus pastor. And no matter which of our three campuses you're joining us from, we are thrilled to be together today, continuing in the series, The Mind Game. And this is week four. And uh, we're excited because over the last few weeks, we have been talking about some important, some sensitive issues. We've covered lust, depression, and pride. And those are all difficult battles that are fought in our heads. Week one through three was all about the battle in your mind, the battle in your mind. So often, our mental state can be the deciding factor in how we're able to handle important issues like that. But this week, it marks a shift in the focus of this series. Instead of focusing on the battle in your mind, in weeks four through seven, we're going to be talking about the battle for your mind, the battle for your mind. And what what do I mean by that? Well, instead of zooming in on specific topics, uh, we're going to be zooming out onto the issue of your mind as a whole, okay? Not what happens in your mind, but what actually controls your mind itself. And I know that might sound a little weird or meta or whatever, but we're going to get there. Hopefully today, this will make a little bit more sense because I believe that this issue, it could not be more important, We're gonna be talking about the single driving factor that is the difference in all of the various types of people in the world, okay? This is the thing that causes some people to love hunting and fishing and they love to eat or freeze, whatever it is that they shoot or catch, and then other people to live a totally vegan lifestyle with no animal products whatsoever, okay? This is what lets some people buy all their clothes at Target and Walmart and other people be unwilling to buy any clothes that they aren't sure was produced with worker equity in mind. That's why some people, it allows them to drink alcohol in moderation, and other people to not be able to use any alcohol products at all. It's why some people were begging for the vaccine, honestly, before it was even done. And then other people will never receive any vaccines of any kind over the course of their entire life. Why some people eat organic, why some people have never looked at an ingredient label in their life, why some people can vote Democrat and other people are offended by the idea of someone voting Democrat why some people have a Black Lives Matter sign in their front yard, and other people have a Blue Lives Matter sign in their front yard. And in extreme cases, this is why a serial killer could systematically kill people and then sleep like a baby at night, while other people, if they were to hit a squirrel with their car, are going to sleep poorly for weeks, okay? (laughs) We are talking about an issue that is relevant to every decision you ever make every single day of your life. We are going to be talking about the conscience the conscience. It's that little voice in your head that lets you know whether or not you should or should not do a particular action. And I would argue while this is one of the most instrumental and important parts of your everyday existence, most of us have spent very little time, if any time at all, thinking about our conscience and even less time thinking about whether or not our conscience is functioning properly. I mean seriously, like take a second and think about it. When was the last time that you listen to a sermon about the conscience, listen to a podcast about the conscience, had even one conscious thought about the conscience, (laughs) right? I mean, for some people, it might be literally never, and I get that. I get that. Yet again, it's the single deciding factor between two people who might have grown up in the same town, who look exactly the same, have had so many of the same life experiences, but they vote, eat, drink, sleep, speak, and act completely differently. It's that powerful, I would say your conscience is the unseen master of your everyday life. And our goal over the next few weeks is to like bring that conscience out into the open and then examine it and evaluate it and decide what's right and wrong and then put it back together in such a way that we can use it to help us honor God. We are entering the battle for control of our minds and that battle starts right now. Are we ready? Are we ready to jump in? Are we ready to do this online? Throw a I'm ready. In the chat, something very original, like, I'm ready. Very creative. Good job, guys. All right, let's buckle up. As we get started, I want to give a huge shout out to a resource that was uh, hugely helpful in, as we were prepping this part of the series. It's a book called, very cleverly, Conscience. They were like really dug deep for that title, okay? Conscience, What It Is, How to Train It and Loving Those Who Differ by Andy Nacelli and J.D. Crowley. And when I say this book influenced this part of the series, what I mean is that it is this part of the series, okay? If you hear anything good that's not directly from the Bible, it probably came directly from this book. So um, I love reading this. Genuinely one of the best books I've ever read. It's short, less than 150 pages, very punchy, really helpful. And if you go to Iwant.info, that website, we've got a link there that will take you to Amazon where you can buy it, or you could just go directly to Amazon. I don't know, Like we're not looking for hits on the website, we're just trying to make it easy and acting like you don't know where Amazon is, I don't know. Um, But we'd love for you to read that book. But what is the conscience, okay? Let's get a definition for this thing. For the rest of the series, we're gonna call the conscience your awareness of what is right and wrong. Your awareness of what is right and wrong. And most of us experience our conscience as that little voice in your head that makes you think something is good or bad. Or maybe you experience it as that that terrible feeling in your stomach when you know you've done something you shouldn't have done. You're like, ugh, I feel like garbage. That's your conscience. That's your conscience working. Uh, And in like movies and TV shows and stuff, sometimes they depict the conscience as like a shoulder angel or a shoulder demon. You know what I mean? Like they get to an important moment of decision and those two things like pop up and they start arguing. You know what I mean? I think we've all experienced that. Where maybe, I mean, hopefully you're not saying actual like angels and demons. That's a different mental issue. (laughs) Um, I can't. I can't help you with that, (laughs) but um, we've experienced that kind of an internal argument because it feels like you're getting pulled in different directions. Should I send this text, right? Should I click on that website? Should I include that in my taxes? Should I tell my boss about this? Should I tell on my boss about this, right? These are all difficult things, and we experience that tension in our day-to-day life. But it also shows up in our more stated and solid convictions, It's your conscience at work when you say things like, how could anyone ever vote Republican or shop at Target or Starbucks or Hobby Lobby or wherever has been most recently canceled, right? Or how could anyone drive a foreign-made car, or buy non-fair trade coffee, or go to a same-sex wedding, or go to a protest, or not go to a protest, or smoke that, or eat that, or drink that, or watch that, or whatever? When you have that moral outrage, when you watch someone else do something that you wouldn't do, that feeling is your conscience at work. And as, as I say those things, if you feel a little defensive, or prickly, or like I do, kind of hot in this region... That's your conscience. Congratulations. You're feeling it. You're feeling your conscience. And that's what we want in this series is to expose it, bring it to the surface, and then talk about it. It's your little voice in your head that helps you make decisions or come to your stated convictions. And so now that we've identified it, let's look at some conscience characteristics. If you're taking notes, you can write these down with us. Conscience characteristics. The first one is this. Your conscience. Conscience. Wow, that word, guys. It's hard to say. I'm like, I've been practicing it. Conscience is from God and it's a gift. Conscience is from God and it's a gift. If I say conscious instead, just forgive me. It's hard, okay? I'm really working at it. When I say that this is from God, here's what I mean. I mean, we are all made in the image of God. It's built into humanity. When God made humans, he made them in his image. Genesis 127 says it this way. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And arguably, one of the most in his image things about humans is our conscience. That sense of goodness and badness and beauty and ugly. That's the essence of the image of God. When we think in moral terms, we are thinking in God-like terms. This is an exclusively human capacity compared to the rest of creation. And the ability to do this is a gift It's a huge gift. There's so much that is made easier and better when we can collectively agree upon things that are good or bad. That's part of why our culture is so difficult right now because we don't have a collective agreement about what's good and bad. It's very helpful. But also I would say that that awful feeling of guilt that you get when you do something you know you shouldn't do, that guilt is also a good thing. It functions like pain does in your life to indicate to you like, hey, hey, something's wrong. It's a signal, and that signal is a gift. Guilt can be a gift. It functions like pain. Conscience is from God, and it's a gift. Another characteristic is that your conscience is uniquely yours. Your conscience is uniquely yours. We have got to get this. Okay, this is so important. Nobody else in the world, and I mean nobody, has the exact same conscience as you. Nobody. You might have people that you are really close with, but you do not have an identical conscience. And this is so important to understand, why is it? Well, because our conscience is so active in our everyday lives, but it goes kind of unseen. And so we don't really notice it necessarily at work all the time. And normally that's fine. It's kind of an invisible function, but it becomes dangerous when we don't notice how often it's my conscience that's telling me this is right or wrong and what I should think about that. And so it leads us to think when we don't notice it, that everybody thinks like this, right? Everybody votes like this. Everybody eats like this. Everybody thinks about sex like this. But the fact is, Literally, no one thinks about everything the way you do. Nobody. And you might have a lot of overlap with some people. And I'm telling you, your Facebook algorithm wants you to think everybody thinks like you. They do not. There are lots of people, even good people, who think differently than you do. So take my wife and I, okay? Uh, We get along pretty well. Her name's Lauren. Um, We we have a lot of fun. We laugh a lot. I feel like we have a good relationship, but we do not see eye to eye on every issue of conscience. I've got a little diagram that I think will help us understand what I mean by this, okay? We don't see eye to eye. We think similarly, but we don't think all the same. So here's a little Venn diagram type thing, but with triangles, and you'll see why later, but... um, There are some areas where we agree, okay? In that center there, that light gray area, we agree on some issues of conscience. For instance, some very deep and abiding morally important ones like love for the Red Sox. Um, Things like hatred for the Yankees. Um, That's because we love the Lord, but... um, So no, like there are things that we agree on for sure, but then there are also, you'll see things in Lauren's conscience, things that she believes are right and wrong that I wouldn't, they don't show up on my conscience. And then there's a lot of things on my conscience that don't show up on hers. And that's just how relationships work. For instance, one thing that's on my conscience that's not on hers, again, deep moral significance, is like how one squeezes the toothpaste tube. Um, Very important, not on her radar, okay? Okay, next, moving on. (laughs) Um, next one, and this one's a little more serious, uh, when it comes to social media, I have, and I'm I'm weird here, I have a conviction related to the existence of social media in general. I have deep reservations and concerns about it, and so I personally am not on social media and, and wouldn't want to be on social media. Now, I don't put that on anybody. Our church has social media. That's great. I'm not judging you. My wife does not share that conviction. So she ha- she's a great follow on Instagram, by the way. You should totally follow her. I hear she's very funny on there. I get screenshots of stuff all the time. So you could follow her. I think it's, I don't know actually what her handle is, but you should follow um, her. <laughs> so she's on social media and that's great. We don't share that conviction. I think differently than she does. We are on the same page theologically, financially, politically, in so many ways, but there are still differences. And here's what that means. If your conscience is exclusively yours, here's what we have to get. It is vital that you do not force your conscience on others. And this becomes very tricky because I'm not saying you're not allowed to have convictions. You are. Or that you can never try to help someone else see what you see in their world. That's also acceptable. But I'm saying you need to mind your own conscience. And I want to show you a scriptural example of this. Uh, In the first century, a Christian leader, his name is Paul, wrote a bunch of letters to groups of Christians around uh, the Mediterranean, and one was to a group of Christians in Corinth who were dealing with a very, very controversial issue that was dividing the church. Can you think of anything like that in our world today? Okay. Okay. But they're they're dealing with a very controversial issue, which doesn't connect with us at all. Like, if you read through these letters, you're like, why was this controversial? It doesn't connect. But we're going to hopefully make it connect in two weeks. We're going to talk about this this very issue very specifically, because I think it's the model for how we should handle controversy in the church. But 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, I want you to notice how this verse ends. This is important. 1 Corinthians 10, 28. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, which for us, we're like, okay, what does that mean? (laughs) It's a controversial issue. They were like all up in arms about it, and we'll get there. Um, He says, well, then don't eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. And then get this. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? Why is my freedom being judged? Did you catch what he's saying there? Your conscience is all yours. Other people can't determine right and wrong for you. And you can't determine right and wrong for them. That's not how this works. God has not called you to be other people's conscience. And it's so vital to do what he has called you to do, which is listen to your own. Now keep this in mind. Christian communities choose to live in such a way that we give other people access to both our conscience and our actions so that they can train and coach and correct each other. That is good. That's healthy. In fact, that's important. But that is a choice that we enter into together as a community, and your conscience is your own. We have to keep that in mind. And then a third uh, thought is this, your conscience isn't perfect. Your conscience isn't perfect. And this might seem obvious, I don't think any of us actually wakes up and like, I'm perfect, like, I don't think we think that way, but we sometimes act that way. And so I want you and me to hear this loud and clear. Nobody has a monopoly on evaluating good and bad. Nobody. Okay? Remember the diagram from earlier with Lauren and I with the triangles? Okay. Um, That's an indication of our overlap, but we have to understand that there's a third layer to this graphic that's important for us to see, and that is that there's another person involved in this, and that is God. God and His view of right and wrong is what we have to keep in mind. So what you'll notice about this diagram is that there in the middle in that light gray, those three dots, Lauren and I share three convictions, let's say, that God also shares. That's good, but you'll notice that both Lauren and but Lauren has one that's inside of God's will that I don't share, that I should get on board with. And I have one that I share with God that she doesn't have, and she should get on board with that. But then also, you'll see that God has one that neither of us have, and we need to get on board with that one. But then you'll also see that Lauren has one that God doesn't share, and that might be fine. Or it might be a cause for concern, but we'd have to figure it out and lean it in together. And then for me, I got a whole list of things that nobody but me has. And that's probably bad, but that's something we got to lean in and get figured out. But no one's conscience is perfect. There are things, there are ways that Lauren and I are both wrong, both of us. And so we have to approach the issue of conscience with active humility and graciousness. We do not have this all figured out. And we have to think that it is very likely That there are other people who have a more God-aligned conscience than we do on different issues. We have to be open to that. Okay, so those are three important conscience characteristics. Uh, That kind of speaks to how the conscience feels for us in our everyday life. But what does the Bible say specifically about the conscience? What does that mean for my everyday life? I've already looked at some passages, but I want to kind of zoom back out to a 30,000 foot view of what the New Testament has to say about conscience. And the word that we translate as conscience, it appears 30 times in the New Testament. We're not going to read all 30 of them, and I'm not going to give you any kind of like an exhaustive list, but I want to get this conversation started look at a few passages um, and see what those passages tell us about what is true of the conscience, okay? And as we do this, I want you to notice words that we're going to put in bold around The conscience, okay, the word conscience, because sometimes when you're trying to figure out a topic biblically, it's helpful to not just look at the times that it appears, which you can easily do through a Google search, but look at the words that appear around it. Okay, what what are some modifiers that are used or verbs that are used nearby? That can help you understand what words or topics mean and, and just get you a little bit bigger picture. Um, so based on the New Testament, here are some things that your conscience can be, okay? what is things that the conscience can be? And the first thing we're going to look at is in Acts 24, verse 16. And this is the Apostle Paul, again, first century Christian leader. He's actually in court when he says this. He's defending himself. And he says this, So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. He wants to keep his conscience clear clear. So again, he's defending himself, and he says the conscience, we can learn here, that it can be clear. That's one of the things that a conscience can be. When that tells us that it can be free of guilt, that is a state that the conscience can be in. It can be free from guilt. Next, 1 Corinthians 8.12. Again, this is Paul. He says, when you sin against them in this way, and you wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. When you wound their weak conscience. Well, what do we learn about the conscience from that simple verse? Well, first, we learn that a conscience can be wounded. That's a thing that you can do to a conscience. And this means that someone is the recipient of someone else's wrong behavior. Okay, they didn't do anything wrong themselves, but they were around someone who was doing something that they personally deemed to be wrong. And so it bruises or bothers or hurts their conscience. And I just would guess that we've all been in some kind of a situation like that at some point in your life, where you're at a party, or you're at someone's house, or your kids do a thing, or your kids' friends do a thing, and you feel like, oh, I don't don't love that. Like, that makes me feel weird, or I just just wasn't comfortable with that. And you kind of look around to see, like, is anybody else noticing this? And you're like, okay, I think I'm the only one. And then you feel kind of silly, like, I don't know, should I say anything? Like, I don't want to be that guy, but it also kind of bugs me. That's a wounded conscience, okay? That's what that idea is, is a wounded conscience. But he also said when you wound their weak conscience. So we also learn in this verse that a conscience can be weak. And a weak conscience, again, in two weeks when we dive into the first century issue, we're going to talk about this a lot. But This is just a conscience that has a hard time letting go of certain man-made restrictions. They're not from God. They might be good ideas, but they're not direct commands. Like, remember that list of all those things at the bottom of my triangle? Those would be someone with a weak conscience who is adding restrictions. And those aren't necessarily bad, but it's an important thing for us to know that the conscience can operate that way. What's next? Let's look at Titus 1.15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe... Nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. What do we learn about the conscience here? It can be corrupted. The conscience can be corrupted. It can become so distorted that it sends wrong signals about what is right and wrong. You can think about it almost like an on-off switch. Like this is somebody who has just turned their conscience off. Like it just doesn't even work. And you can do that in a bunch of different ways. But someone who continually is able to do morally egregious things, they have corrupted their conscience. It's not functioning properly. Let's look at one more passage which has two more characteristics. Hebrews 10, verse 22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Okay, so what what do we learn here? Well, first it says that it's a guilty conscience. So this is another bad adjective that we're learning can describe the conscience, but this is not the same thing as corrupted. Corrupted means it's off. It's not working right, okay? Guilty conscience means that it is working properly. It's identifying wrong things, but my behavior is in the wrong, and so my guilty conscience is going off. That's a conscience working properly. That's what guilt is. Um, But what's great is we've gone over some things that it can be weak, wounded, corrupted, you know, guilty, all these bad things. But what's great is it can also be, from this verse, it says it can be cleansed. It can be cleansed, which means something was wrong with the conscience, but it got repaired. It can be changed. It can be calibrated. It can be reset to be in alignment with what God sees as right and wrong with the world. Okay, so wow, (laughs) I just gave you six things that can be from the New Testament, three conscience characteristics, and you're like, goodness, is this going to have anything to do with my everyday life? The answer is yes, okay? We're going to try to get to some of that for the remainder of the time uh, that we have this morning, kind of shifting gears to say, what am I supposed to do with this information, with those six things from the New Testament and those three conscience characteristics? What I'm going to give you here are the two most important rules that we have to understand about the conscience, and I have to cough real quick. Terrible time to cough in public. There's nothing good that can come from, I'm fully vaccinated, okay, so relax. (laughs) Sorry, conscience issues. (laughs) My bad, all right. I gotta get going, there's a timer, okay. What am I supposed to do with this information? Two most important rules, okay? Things that you have to understand. Um, And these are not easy to get your head around, okay? I want to acknowledge that right now. There's going to be some internal tension in these rules, but I'm convinced if you can wrestle the tension between these two rules to the ground, you will have an amazing head start on Christian liberty, freedom issues in your everyday life. So these are the two most important rules in the conscience. The first is that only God's standards are perfect. The two unchangeable rules about the conscience are first, only God's standards are perfect. And we've already alluded to this, but it's the most important thing for you to know. If you forget this, you are already way off, okay? Only God has perfect standards. Not your pastor, not your favorite book, not your mom or your dad, not any judge, not any jury, nobody has perfect standards but God. Another way to say this is God is always right. I am not always right. Okay? God is always right. I am not always right. In fact, that's so important. I would like everyone to say it together and type it into the chat. On three, we're going to say, I am not always right. Okay? One, two, three. I am not always right. That sounded great. Let's say it again. I am not Not always right. You know what? You're right. You're not. (laughs) And neither am I. I am not always right. Only God's standards are perfect. And here's the second rule, and this is where it gets confusing, always obey your conscience. Always obey your conscience. If in doubt, if you're wondering, should I do any particular action? If your conscience says it's wrong, it's wrong. Heart stop. That's the end of the conversation. That's all you need to know. If your conscience says it's wrong, it's always wrong. But if you're playing along at home, you're probably wondering, didn't you just say, Make me literally say out loud, I am not always right. Why is the second rule that I should always obey my conscience? What if my conscience is wrong? Good question. That's where this gets sticky and extremely controversial. It gets very confusing. Because regardless of whether or not your conscience is objectively right or wrong, here's what you have to know. It is your only compass. And so if it says that something is wrong for you, it is always wrong for you. And it could be that your conscience is too strict, and that you should be allowed to do things that your conscience currently says you can't. Okay, that's fine. That could be. But it also could be that your conscience is not strict enough, and you're currently doing things with no tinge of guilt that you should feel guilty about. But that's where we have to remember. Only God's standards are perfect, and your responsibility is to not somehow become perfect, It's for you to choose to obey what you understand to be God's desires for those who follow him. Always obey your conscience. And I know this is confusing, so let me break it down a little bit more. What do I mean especially about the tension between these two things? Here's our responsibility that you have to know. The first part of our responsibility is to bring our conscience into alignment with God's word. That's our first and most important responsibility. Bring your conscience into alignment with God's word. Since we know our conscience is not always perfect, but we still have to always obey our conscience, the most important part of our responsibility at Christians is to make sure that our moral compass is pointed in the right direction. So that's going to mean we have to continually recheck and then recalibrate our conscience to see, is this lined up with God's will? And then as we do that, we, it leads to our second part of our responsibility, which is simply this, to bring our actions into alignment with our conscience. Do you see how that dynamic works? First, we make sure my compass is properly lined up, and then I follow my compass. Not somebody else's compass, not your compass, my compass. And as you might suspect, that process is much easier said than done to bring our conscience into alignment with God's and then obey it. That's very difficult. That's a hard tension. I mean, how do I not judge other people but still objectively state what God's Word says, right? How do I not slip into moral relativism, right? How do I ensure that my conscience is in alignment with God's? There's a lot of views. There's a lot of smart people on all sides of these issues. What am I supposed to do? These are hard questions to answer. In fact, they're hard enough that we're going to spend all of next week trying to lean into them. We're going to just be trying to answer, how do I calibrate my conscience? How do I fulfill that first responsibility to ensure that my conscience is in alignment with God's Word? And we'd love to have you back next week as we explore that very important issue. And just so you know where we're going for the rest of the series, next week's all about how do I get my conscience aligned with God's such an important responsibility. The week after that is when we're doing that deep dive into the first century issue. If we don't get how they dealt with that issue, we won't have a template to deal with our own controversial issue. So we're going to dive into it there. Very important foundation laid. And then in the final week of the series, we're just going to talk about controversial stuff. Um, this should be fun. And um, yeah, so we're going we're gonna to take the principles that we've learned about the conscience and talk about them. Hey, what, how do we apply this to the modern day context? And honestly, what I want you to be cl- clear on, we're not going to be telling you what to think. That's not our uh, objective. There are great Christians who disagree on certain kinds of issues. But if we can surface the tools necessary to handle conscience issues well, then as a church, we will be able to move forward in unity. In fact, I had a conversation uh, with a young lady um, after our first service this morning here at the Rochester campus, and she just said, she asked me, um, do, do you think that there are issues that God has given us where basically it's in the gray, where we're not, we're not sure what we're supposed to do? And my answer was yes. And I think that God has given us these issues of gray where the Bible isn't transparently clear so that we would learn what it's like to have strong convictions and yet offer grace to our brothers and sisters in Christ. What an incredibly difficult but important way for us to grow in our sanctification to become more like Christ, to learn to give grace while having strong convictions. An amazing tool for our spiritual growth that I think God has given to the church. But if we just say, well, I disagree with them, and so I can't. I can't even with them. I'm unfollowing them or whatever. Man, we're not leaning into this tension. We're not learning to live in unity. We got to learn to calibrate our conscience. And that's what the rest of the series is going to be all about. So I've included in your notes some questions that you're going to be going over in community group. And so you'll have a chance to, to ask them this, answer them this week. But I would encourage you to ask them to yourself before you ever even get to group. Because in some ways, we're landing this plane with kind of like, okay, cool. That was a cool introduction, but like, what am I going to do? I'm saying we got to get the, the pump primed. We got to be thinking about these things. And let's, let's get started thinking of it before even in community group. I mean, community group might get a little spicy this week. That'd be great, right? to have a serious dialogue about what the scripture says about these issues. So here's some questions that I think you could work through. Have I ever considered the role that the conscience plays in my everyday life? Like just, that's a yes or no. Like have I ever thought about this? And if not, maybe maybe this is something you need to lean into. Am I currently experiencing a clear conscience or a guilty conscience? And how would I know, right? Do, Do you feel like you're doing the right thing or the wrong thing? And how would you know what that feels like? Think about that in your own life and then discuss it as a group. Or is it possible that I am using, get this, my conscience as a weapon against other people? You seen any of that lately? Conscience used as a weapon? Or when it comes to issues that I'm passionate about, have I left room for the possibility that good Christians might disagree on this issue? The possibility. I'm not saying don't have strong convictions. Goodness, have I got them. (laughs) have I left open the possibility that I have something to learn here and that a good Christian might disagree? I think those are some challenging questions. I would love for us to be discussing them this week as we head into our groups and head into the rest of this series. Would you pray with me as we finish? Lord, our hearts and our minds are deceitful. They are desperately wicked. We don't even know the depths to which we're able to justify our own sinful decisions. And you've given us your church to be that check. You've given us your word and your spirit to be our guide. May we lean into that with our full conviction and the assurance that you will guide us to be pleasing to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.